Hello and welcome to Right Hearted with me, Stuart Wakefield. I am delighted to be joined by Gwen Tolios today. Gwen is a short story author and municipal liaison for the Naperville region of National Novel Writing Month. Gwen, it's great to have you. Thank you very much. Oh, of course. I'm excited to be here. I'm very, very pleased you're here. Um, so uh, as with all writers, I'm really interested in how you started writing. So can you tell me about, you know, when you first got the bug? Oh, way early elementary school. Really? <laughs> I actually remember a teacher um, assigning short stories and, and wanting us to write different stories every day. And I couldn't. I wanted permission to continue my story from the, from the previous oh, day. Okay. <laughs> and just kept going. Right. Um, so it hit me pretty early um, doing short things, like usually for school. But then I started uh, writing a little more serious, creating my own uh, more elaborate works and the likes in uh, middle school, high school time. Right. Okay. So um, age, that would be like around 13. Okay. So you were kind of always in it for like for the long haul. It wasn't just like bits and pieces. You wanted to write a full and complete story. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that really hit me about 13, like I said, because when I was in elementary school, I wanted to continue with things, but never really finished it. Okay. Um, but 13 is when I was like, I want to do something complete, start to finish. Um, and then also that's when I started to want to share things. Okay. And how did you feel when you first started sharing things? Because I know that can be quite a big moment for, for many authors. Right. And um, it's funny that you that you actually asked that because last week, one of my old high school friends found a zine that we put together in high school. So it was the first publication <laughs> that I had ever done. And I'm flipping through this and I'm like, oh my goodness. Um, but I could tell all of us were really nervous about being published because we all used pen names. Okay. So none of us actually um, had our had our real names, even though it only got distributed to our high school. And maybe that's because we used pen okay. names. Because <laughs> you, know, you don't want to be judged by your peers, especially when it's, you're very sensitive the first time you have something out yeah. there. Um, but I still remember like being so like, so happy, like to have that in my hand when I first got it. Of course, when I was like going through the PDF last week, it was like, oh my God, <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe this is what I had published. Because I've always envied, um, and I, you know, I don't know how prevalent it is, but when I watch, you know, American teen stuff, they, a lot of them have like uh, the, the local kind of school newspaper, and that isn't something that really sort of happened at, at you know in a British school. So your uh, mm -hmm. zine that was kind of separate and distinct to your school newspaper. We actually didn't have a school. Oh, newspaper. okay. So right. Yeah. So um, uh, my I went to a really small town, and so anything local was in the community newspaper. Right. We didn't have one specific for the school. Okay. And then how did your writing develop once you kind of left school? Um, so it really kicked off once I hit college. So by the time I was in college, I was doing a lot of um, a lot of short stories, some that I was putting online, and I'll admit because when you're young, like I really got into fan fiction, okay. and so I did a lot of that that I was sharing online. Um, but my junior year of college, I ended up getting accepted to a creative writing class. Nice. So you had to submit a story, the professor had to approve you, and then you got, and I got in there with one of my roommates at the time. Okay. And so that was just like a real big push for me to get serious about it. And so my writing really started, I would say, to develop and, and kick off then. Because okay. then I had some instruction. I had, I had a professor that I could work with. I had a roommate who was also inter 
interested in writing and so we could pass things back and forth. Mm -hmm. That's also the time that I found my first critique group. Okay. So that also helped really well. And my critique group was um was actually not fellow uh students. Okay. So it was adult writers who were a little beyond me in publication. So one of one of the members had an agent, someone else was really invested in self-publishing. Um, someone had a, a history of having small short stories being published. And so that was also really good. Okay. Um, able to just communicate with a variety of writers and, and have them help guide me. Okay. And what did it feel like joining a group like that? Oh, God, I was so nervous at first. <laughs> <laughs> like, here I am, this this stinky little you know, college student. Everyone else had at least like 15, 20 years on me. <laughs> I was just like, oh, my God, I hope I'm not awful. Um, so it was very intimidating okay. at times. Yeah. Um, but it was a nice balance because... I felt that the students that I had in my class, we were all learning and we were all very open to these discussions mm -hmm. uh, more about like the story and how we felt about the work. And when it was my critique group, it was a lot more about like the structure and plot. And so I kind of had the both of them together. Um, and I really was just grateful for both of them well, at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like that kind of perfect mix of those, of those two worlds. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I always think there's a bit of an art to critiquing. Um, so when you kind of started, I mean, how do you feel like your cre your critiquing has kind of developed or some of the um, nightmares that you've seen? Because I've seen a few big falling outs. So what? how yeah. did you learn? What did you feel most comfortable with? Was it your critiquing group at, you know, with all these adult writers or at, at college? actually felt a little more comfortable doing it with with the adults okay. um so and the reason for that is they were also very different critiquing styles so in my class it would be you would go around the room and you'd be like here's something I like here's something I didn't like so very generic but you also had it was a much larger group okay. so you had to get through like 15 people's opinions right. um but that was um it's kind of where I started to also see that there's always going to be that difference of opinion. Mm -hmm. So there would definitely be times where like, I would not really like a piece that one of my fellow students, like, like I was just like, didn't get okay. it. And then other people in the room would be like, Oh my God, I thought this was the most hilarious right. thing ever. <laughs> um, and so getting used to, and, and this is something that I will still struggle with, with, with critiques is to me, critiques are always supposed to be critical. Okay. Um, they're meant to point things out to improve. Yeah. And, learning that that's not always what you should be doing with them. Okay. Um, so I started learning that with, with the other students because I was seeing that my opinion didn't necessarily match everyone else's. Okay. Um, and then when I was with the older writers group, I was finding that a lot of the critiques weren't as emotion-based, but they were a lot more, um, and I also don't want to say structured, okay. but a lot more designed as guidance. So, like this made me feel this, like specifically pointing to things in the text, whereas a lot of the students were just like, I liked it. I didn't <laughs> like it, but we were all learning. We didn't, we didn't yeah. know. And so working with these, these other people who are more advanced writers and more advanced critiquers actually helped me realize that critiquing isn't always about being super critical, which is like what I said, what I thought it should be. Um, 
And that's how I had always wanted to be critiqued too, actually, is I wanted that really critical reads. Um, but it is also a chance to tell people what you liked yes. to make connections. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that's kind of helped me go through life too. Like um, my day job is actually an analyst. Okay. And so I'm always looking for these patterns. And I feel like it's kind of gone hand in hand sometimes with my critiquing, especially if I'm helping people across a larger work. Okay. Um what patterns might I be seeing? How can I, you know, connect the dots between what I'm feeling as I'm reading it and the words that are actually on the page? Um, but you had to start somewhere <laughs> and I'm still working. <laughs> um, but those, those first two groups were very instrumental in helping me figure that okay. out. Okay. I mean, what, what I have noticed is <clears throat> certainly with like younger readers and writers, if they engage with the premise of the story, they are a lot more forgiving of all the, of all the technical stuff that an older critiquer can't, yes. can't see past, I guess. Very much so. And one of the things that I actually also did while I was in university is I volunteered with a group called 826 Michigan. Okay. And it was a nonprofit that ran creative writing and critique groups for middle school and high school students. Okay. So that was also like very like, like you said, it was kind of being uh, really kind of like, like guiding people and, and being very aware of what you're saying. Because <laughs> um, it, it's designed to help people. And that was definitely in a situation where I felt that I had a power position mm. and I had to be a lot more con- concerned about that. Right. Okay. Um, God, I mean, like writing has just been part of my life for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I, 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 it, it's interesting because you're the first person I've interviewed who's kind of always like pretty much always know what they wanted to do and I've always envied people like that you know if you see musicians they're like oh yeah I picked up a guitar when I was three um and I do find it really interesting when you've got that kind of continuum of writing because um you're you're used to expressing yourself and so certainly when I first started writing I mean I was I was all over the place and I didn't really I thought just by watching tv I knew what what story was but actually you know as, as I've grown and developed and done my MA and all that kind of stuff you do learn to step back and look at things more critically um and it's very freeing when you first start writing like that but you know for you personally I envy that you've been able to do it that that much younger um so so you've you've been writing at school um, you've been writing yeah. at college you've, you've been in this critique group um what what happened when college kind of finished um, so when college finished is when I started submitting stories okay. to magazines and publications. Right. Um, it was a different time. I had to submit it like in an envelope through the mail. Wow, okay. <laughs> no Old school. Um, so I, and, and none of the, none of those original stories that I sent out, you know, got picked up, which, you know, is for the best. I actually went through a few of them recently and I was like, yikes, no wonder. Okay. Um, but you know, I was still new. And at that point I was very new to wanting to write from, uh, from an aspect of sharing it, not just online for free, but actually getting it published. That's really when I started to have that mindset. And a lot of that helped from that external critique group, because here was someone with an agent. Like I looked through her proof copies. I was like, this is so cool. Um, so that is what ended up happening when I left but I only had about a year until I joined the Peace Corps. Okay. And then so Peace Corps was 
an interesting time, I will say. Um, you're pretty isolated. Okay. <laughs> like you don't have anyone. Like like you have like your neighbors and such, but your neighbors are going to be foreign nationals. So they, it's it's sometimes hard to integrate. Okay. But I also felt that that was a very productive time for me okay. because I would have a lot of alone time. I would have my laptop, and so I could just be like, let's write. Um. So I would do a lot of binge writing. Like it'd be like 2 a.m. and I'd be in bed and the lights would be off and I'm still just like typing in the dark. Oh, um, <laughs> the computer glow. I had to fill the time somehow, yeah. you know? And while I am a short story writer at heart, that is where I actually ended up starting to get into some more longer works that I was comfortable with okay. because I had the time, I had the ability. Anytime um, you go someplace new and you travel, I feel like that's also a lot of inspiration. Okay. So I had a lot of stuff to work from. Good. And so you, you've talked about, you know, you've been working on some or you had worked on some longer work before. Um, how did you find the difference between the two? Because, um, you know, from other writers I've spoken to, it, it seems like not a completely different skill set, but certainly um, one that kind of needs to be modified. Um, so for you, writing short stories, how do you think that differs or what lessons did you learn when you started writing longer form fiction? Well, mainly that I kind of sucked at it. Um, <laughs> but so, um, and, and, and the issue is, is because I tend to approach them very differently. And okay. this is something that I'm still trying to figure out myself right. because right now I am writing um, both short stories and longer. I, I Sometimes I hesitate to call them novels okay. because as I edit them, sometimes they get big, right. sometimes they get small and they're more like in the novella range. Okay. So like 30, 40 K yeah. versus a true novel. Um, and I approach them very differently. So when I approach short stories, what I'm doing is it's really, um, I guess kind of like poetry. You're trying to isolate one small section. Mm -hmm. So I'm isolating a particular bit of character tension okay. or I'm isolating a particular event, a particular feeling. Um, a lot of my short stories end up also being cathartic writing. Okay. So um, tending to do, to really focus in on that. And then every time I'm doing a longer work, I find that I try to plot it. Okay. I never plot my short stories. Okay. I just sit there and I write and I'm like, okay, now I'm done. <laughs> um, Whereas with, with novels and, and the longer works, I'm like, okay, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's like maybe some, some senses of, of arcs and, and the events I want to happen. Mm -hmm. But I'll admit I'm ha that's what I usually struggle with the long works is because I don't naturally think that way. I have to force my way to think into like, how would I construct an arc? I have to force myself to think about like, what would be the different beats of a plot? Um, I find that a lot of times my work gets loaded because like I said for for short fiction like I'm focusing in on these little conversations well you can't have seven of those same little conversations in a novel right. like it gets you know the dialogue might be different yeah. but the emotions are probably the mm -hmm. same the situations around it isn't changing you know you're just in the kitchen three times um so, <laughs> it fills up my life <laughs> um, right so it's it's they're definitely different skill sets and some things transfer and some things don't mm. And I do find that they are completely different mindsets. It's not as simple as taking a short story and adding more elements to it. You have to do a lot more. Yeah, yes, so. yeah. I, I was working with um, a script editor and he said something to me um, 
and we we ended up talking about about novels, even though he was my supervisor for my MA. Um, and he said to me, "Novels are about." No, what was it he said? He said, "Novels are about the most important time in someone's life, and short stories are about the most important moment in someone's life." I would agree yeah? with that. Yeah, and and a lot of short stories, um, like. I, I listen to them more than I read right. them. There's just a lot of podcasts out there that do yeah. it. Um, but a lot of them tend to be about like those, those, those pivots and you don't have a lot of conclusions sometimes in the stories because they are those microcosms. Um, and so, yeah, definitely. I would agree with that. I, I know what I like to think about is I think it's Mary Abinant Colwell who said it is um, they linked different types of story lengths to sporting events. Okay. So like the novels, the Olympics, right. um, and then the short stories are the highlight reels. Okay. Um, so there's, there's always different levels of the story you could be telling. Um, but getting to that and knowing which level to, to talk about can also be really difficult. All right. Okay. Not everyone wants to watch all the Olympics. Either. Yeah. Some people just really want to watch curl. <laughs> so. I, I must admit, I'm not, I'm not like I don't think of myself as a big short story reader, but when I do read, you know, a, a short story that kind of really speaks to me, you know, I do find myself flipping back through it and scanning it to see are there any extraneous words in here, or is it is it also with like themed, and and I think one of the things that I have struggled with. So you mentioned trying to make a short story longer is you know sometimes if i've just written a page or a scene or something like that it's it you can't really build build it out because just making those sentences longer feels like like we have an expression like flogging a dead horse um and again it does, oh yep i'm familiar right okay so uh, it does it it does really really feel like like an art and i worked i did a development edit um, with an author who'd written 12 short stories, um, one for each month and wanted to make them into one novel. And we found it you know, incredibly difficult to find a way to do it. And in the end, we found a couple of characters and we strung those characters through every story and gave them an arc. Um, but that was the only way we could, we could kind of really get around it. So, so speaking of short, short stories and, you know, opening yourself up to, to, you know, many other people. How did you first hear about National Novel Writing Month? Oh, do you know what? I don't actually know. Okay. That, that's interesting. <laughs> it just kind of slipped in. <laughs> um, pretty much. Like, um, weirdly enough, where I think I might have heard it is I think I mentioned a little bit before, like when I started, uh, I got very into fan fiction. Right. Um, and I think I learned about national novel writing month in an author's note on a story okay. they had written it as part of nano right. uh and then i was like oh like a writing event with support and other people doing it with you let's try okay. um so i do i do remember that i did my first one in while i wasn't in, in undergrad okay. so while i was still a student right. which um and then I've done it almost every year since. Okay. I think I've done 12 years wow, of nano now. that's commitment. Right? <laughs> so long. <laughs> so, I mean, doing it as an undergraduate as well, I mean, that's a 
it's a big time suck. I mean, I know it's only one month, but even so, I mean, that's very, very intensive on top of your studies. How did you kind of manage manage all of that? I have an interesting relationship to writing. Okay. So where I would, I sometimes find myself that I like, I really need to write. So I would be sitting in lectures and I'd be like, oh, this could be the next part. Um, <laughs> so I was kind of brainstorming that and even, but because it, it's, it, it is hard because uh, you've got studies and you've got exams around that time. In some cases, you've got the holidays. So my parents would be like, why are you writing? It's Thanksgiving. Come have turkey. <laughs> um, but I, but to kind of a, a better example of how I, I went through, it might've been when I was in grad school. Okay. So when I was in grad school, I also did nano. Wow. Um, one of the few years I did not hit the 50 K okay. words. Um, but I remember sitting in my apartment trying to study for an exam I had the next day <laughs> okay. and I could not concentrate because I knew that evening the Logra's writers group was meeting in the cafe down the street okay. and they were doing a session where they would just shut up and write. Right. And I was so preoccupied with the idea that I wasn't there writing with them that I couldn't focus on my studies. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I am. Damn. Okay. <laughs> I stopped studying and I went to write at the you cafe. You did. And how did the exam go? I don't remember. <laughs> but I graduated, you know? Who cares? I graduated. Like, it's fine. Right? <laughs> um, that's, that's what matters. Absolutely. I got my degree. Absolutely. I got a job afterwards. Like, come on. Uh, but so balancing school and writing and, and now even like life and yeah. writing um and work is just something i do yeah. probably because i maybe don't sleep enough and maybe drink too much coffee right. okay but um i also it's it's always been a, a like a at least a medium priority for me so i'm always trying to find the space to write um having writer friends is also really yeah. nice so then your hangouts yeah. like hey i haven't seen you in a while let's go to a cafe and write <laughs> <laughs> do you know <laughs> like, do you think something magical happens when when writers get together because um oh totally. yeah i remember my first writing everyone else is sitting around writing and i mean we weren't speaking and and you know i mean i wouldn't be doing this podcast if i didn't like talking and um there was something very powerful about you know just sitting with other people that are writing and it wasn't like a competitive thing. It was just, just uh, I don't know, it, it, there was a degree of comfort and a degree of energy um, that, I, that I was getting from those other people. So, you know, I know people say, you know, that writing is a very lonely, uh, you know, uh, pursuit, but I, I disagree. I think once you find other writers, you kind of want to be with them. Yeah. So, so yeah. And that's why I really liked Nana. Right. Okay. <laughs> Because <laughs> you had that community. You'd go and you would sit in a cafe with other people and you'd just sit there and write. Yeah. You're like, this is amazing. Yes. We all we would all be working on different stories, yeah. obviously, but we all had that same drive. We were there. We wanted to create. And it's sometimes helpful for like the little moments where like, I need a name. Someone give me a boy's name. <laughs> or I need a name of a town. Someone hit me up. Yeah. Um or, or little plot helps. Like everyone is like, yeah, tell me about your story. Let me do it. And then you just go back to writing silently yeah. for 20 minutes. It's it's just beautiful. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a, it was a real eye-opener for me. Um, so National Novel Writing Month, the idea is that you write 50,000 words in the month of November, uh, but you're a short story writer. 
So how do you, so if you don't do that, you're called a nano rebel. So uh, um, what do you yes. do? I do a little bit of everything. Okay. Um, so when I first did nano, I was trying to write novels. Okay. And I would hit the word count, but they would be really bad. Okay. Um, so, but I've I've also had a lot of rebel years okay. where instead what I was doing is I might have been taking the work and I would be editing it. Okay. So that was that was something that I've done. I did a few years where I just wanted to turn out a bunch of stories, maybe around the theme. Yeah. This past year, actually, um, like. COVID just sucks. And I wasn't feeling super creative. So I turned it into a creativity month. Okay. So everyone else would be, Nano was was very virtual. So all of our write-ins weren't at coffee shops. They were on Zoom. But everyone would be sitting there on their laptop and I would have this giant notebook up. And my goal was to write 50 handwritten pages of just world building and plots. In nice. Okay. Um, and so I flipped between like 10 different stories trying to put things together. But it, so... I turned it more into a creativity month and, and nano for me has progressed kind of from being like, let's sit down and write mm. a novel to let's just have very focused writing time with a community of writers that is pretty much absolutely dedicated to the projects for this month. Like during nano, I remember one year I never even went grocery shopping the entire <laughs> Really? Um, well, just to, just to get everything really? in. Um, well, it was, so I had gone like grocery shopping right before, okay. which helped. Um, but then my region has a really good partnership with a lot of local libraries. And so it wasn't uncommon for us to go to a write-in and, oh, the library had food for us. Oh, nice. Or, yeah. oh, maybe we're doing a write-in at a bar Perfect. or a cafe <laughs> or a restaurant. Let's get trash. So then I don't, I don't need the food in my fridge, you know? Um, so I would just like stock up and like, um, frozen meals or things that would last, lots of pasta. Yeah, Cheerios. Um, <laughs> right? So then you didn't have to go grocery shopping that month. Um, but that's not uncommon. And, and that's part of what makes Nano cool is people tend to sacrifice things in order to focus on this on this project. Um, maybe it's family time, maybe it's TV time, but we're all 100% dedicated to our project. And it helps because we have the community around us yes, to do it with. Yes, absolutely. You you mentioned lockdown. I just wanted to get your kind of view on that. So what I've noticed is my friends who say I'm not creative, okay, uh, they've all bought these colour by numbers uh, paintings and they're all getting into crafts and doing all this amazing creative stuff. All, most of the creative people I know have completely stopped and they're finding lockdown really difficult in which to be creative and a part of me <clears throat> wonders and you know obviously you know you you said that you work as an analyst when i was you know working a full-time job i would snatch all of those pieces of time that i had to write so if i got to work early i'd write before you know 9 a.m i'd grab writing time at lunchtime and then now i have all the time to write i feel like some of the drive has gone how do you kind of do you have any particular like not tips, but any kind of tricks that you or how have you kind of melded your day job and your your writing? Um, well, if it's a slow day at work, I might open up the document on my work computer. Yeah, I've done the same. <laughs> so, right, yeah. and it, it, but it's weird. I feel like sometimes my my 
best writing flow might be during the hours of nine to five when I should technically be working. Um, And I think it's because it feels like secret stolen time. Uh, So, so I know I have to be super productive during that time period where like everything else, I'm just like, I can write or I can clean my bathroom or I could do this. So what helps is I have to force myself. Um, One of the ways that I do that is by my, my current writers critique group type of type of person thing. Um, We have weekly, weekly writing sessions. So I know that this is four hours every Thursday people put aside the time to write okay. and knowing it's writing time is like, okay, this is, this is going to be my focus is really helpful. What also helps me is I'm a big fan of, of like deadlines and to-do lists, yeah, because if I don't, if it's not in front of me, it's going to, I'm going to forget it. Um, especially because I tend to be naturally also, I tend to be more of a binge writer. Okay. So I might not write for a while and then, the whole weekend will go by. And I'm like, I turned out 15,000 words. How did that happen? <laughs> so I'm trying to try, like, I want to get into a more regular rhythm of it too. So I have my phone alert me and I have a to-do item of just 10 minutes every day. Okay. Um, so forcing myself to do that 10 minutes isn't very long. Like in 10 minutes is probably how long it takes my French fries to cook in the oven. <laughs> um, so that's, that is helpful. Yeah. Um, but then also kind of, branching out what is part of writing for um if that makes sense so for me part of writing would be like researching markets figuring out where i want to submit a story that's then i'm still kind of in that headspace even if i'm not maybe having a creative flow um but also reading i tend to do I, i tend to read for pleasure because i'm like yeah this sounds cool but I also tend to read because I'm like, this might be a market I want my story to get okay. into. What are they publishing? Yeah. Um, here's a story that would it be um, a comp title, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Let me read that. Right. What's happening in the, in the market? Yeah. Or right now I have a few nonfiction books. And I'm like, this might just be like good research. Okay. So having that creativity comes and yeah. goes, like, yeah. let's be yeah. honest. Um and enforcing it is not the best thing, but that doesn't mean you still can't be working on on things to prepare you yes. for when your creativity yeah. gets you. And you mentioned um, you were in one of your, your classes at college and um, you had an idea for something. And I, I do think a lot of writers are always 100% present. I, d- I do think that, you know, there is like 10, 15% in the back of their head even though when they're watching a movie and like a particular line comes up or a particular, you know, scene happens. And there's, I think for writers, they're like, Oh, I can use that. Uh, Yeah. So I I think personally, my view is this rule that you have to write every day. Um, I think it's useful, but you know, uh, like you, I mean, I, I, I do sit down for four hours every day, but that's because I get to, but before that, I did exactly the same thing. You know, I would I would binge write. I might have a week off. Um, you know, obviously in between novels, I would mm-hmm. I would take a bit of time out, just do other things. Um, so your writing group that you're in now, um, how did that how did that come about? Um, so it's actually a migration of my nano region. Okay. 
So what ends up happening is nano happens. Everyone is like really riding high from the creativity. Hey, I finished something. But once you finish something, there's there's more steps. If you want to get published, not everyone does. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people just like to write for the joy of it. So my nano region kind of morphs into a year round a writer's group. Okay. Um, it's a little less. More people are involved in nano than the writers group. Um, but then the the writers group has just been really good at uh, sharing resources, helping people, setting up events to do. So, um, and in how it's structured, is different people will lead different things. So, um, like as as an as a municipal liaison during November and, and before that, like also in October, cause you've got all the prep stuff. Mm-hmm. I tend to do a lot of workshops. Okay. So I'll read maybe, um, I'll, I'll, I'll read a book and I turn it into writing advice and I, and I share it. Um, something I've done for a few years now is like how to write a novel when you have no plot. Okay. Um, you know, <laughs> you go to the library and people are like, yeah, teach me. I'm like, okay. You don't have a plot, um, just write a short story. It's, it's, right. It's kind of funny because like, I all and that's it's the kind of a running joke in our group is that I am a plot or, or a pantser. Okay. I don't plot because, like I said before, like with short stories, that's that's not how I think. I think about this one thing and then we expand and then okay, it, for a short story, like it only expands to maybe two three thousand words. For a novel, I try to take this thing and it doesn't always expand correctly. Okay. But the joke is like, I never have a plot. So of course I'm the person you're going to go to like, how do I write something if I don't have any idea? I'm like, I got you. Um, so, and that's kind of what the group does a lot. And then something that comes out of that is there are a lot of people in the group who are very interested in getting published. So the group runs an anthology. Okay. And that's kind of where also I have, I have, stepped up and taken some some leadership role in addition to the nano right. work it is getting involved with the anthology uh I, I was involved for a few years and then last year actually ended up being one of the official editors right for the anthology okay but out. and so is it four anthologies you've had so far um the group has actually started the process for 17 of them wow um right okay <laughs> Not all of them have been published. Okay. Um, some of them kind of petered out. Some of them ended up living as they're like microfiction, so they're on a, 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 a small website. So the ones that have actually been published in paperback and that you could purchase, I think number ten or twelve okay. um, that the group has group has done. I have only been a member of the group for th- four years now. I think. Right. Um, so I just kind of came right in, did a year of nano, and then they were like, be an ML. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then and then it just kind of kind of got caught up in also the the greater group that happens here right. Okay. Um, which is absolutely fine because like I said before, you, you want writers, you hang out with them, and if your friends are writers, then you're all right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And as I say, it's like it's very, very empowering. So Thinking about the the anthology, so I, I mentioned this to, to my group and they kind of like took my arm off. They were like, yes, 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 this is something we want to do. So for me, you know, I'm not entirely sure about how to how to set something like that up. So how does your anthology work? 
Um, very different than standard anthologies that you would probably think mm-hmm. of. So, because as a short story author, I tend to submit to a lot of anthologies. And usually what happens is the editor will pull out the call, like, hey, here's what we're looking for. You submit a story and you're like, accepted or not. Mm, okay, whatever. Um, here's a contract if you did. If not, move on to the to the next market. Um, what we actually do for ours is a lot more uh, elaborate may or may not be the right word there, but it's a lot more structured and it's more designed as a workshop. Okay. So what happens is, and it's also while there are editors relatively um, democratic. Okay. So the group as a whole votes on what do we want the theme of the anthology? Okay. And then once that is determined the editors get together and they're, they type, try to clarify it. So what do, you, what do we want the theme to actually mean? What type of guidance do we want to give our authors? What type of limits might we want to set? Is this going to be a PG-13 anthology like most of us most of ours have been? Um, are we going to have a word count limit, 3,000, 5,000, and figure out the mechanics of it? And then we put out the call and say, okay, write your stories and give us your first draft. And then comes the true workshop part of the anthology. So what ends up happening is uh, as editors, we would read these, all of these stories. And so this can be up to like 50 stories, depending on how many people want to submit. And we're evaluating it, like what might need work, what might not need work does this fit within our themes and at the same time while we're going through the story we are assigning other people within the anthology to do critiques okay so the first draft is getting looked at not only by an editor but also by three other authors and then you do it again okay (laughs) so um so you you then you submit your second draft and the same thing happens as you will get those three different critiques from different authors in the anthology, turn in your second draft, turn in your third draft, get three more rounds of critiques, okay. and then we get to your final story, which is the fourth draft. And how long does that that piece of the process take? Um, it will vary. Okay. Um, so it varies usually depending on how many authors are in the anthology. Uh, the more authors you have, the more time we, we found that we had to give them. We try try to finish a lot of the the writing and critiques usually in the summer so we kick it off in january so by like july we like to have all of that done uh and then the editor's work really like steps up to plate here because then it's you might have had a theme but what's the title going to be what's the cover going to look like how are we going to group stories into like-minded sections perhaps uh, writing a contract, what type of rights do we want to ask for, getting those contracts from the authors, um, and then going through the actual hard bit of preparing it for, for publication, <laughs> like taking all these messy documents in, in, in Google Docs and turning it into a file that we could submit to Amazon. Okay. Um, so it's you're, you're with the process like the entire time, the way we do it. So it makes it a little intensive, but we tend to start to finish. The process will take uh, 12 to 14 months. Wow. Okay. So you aim to do one anthology a year. Is, is that is that right? 
Ideally, okay. yeah. We don't always we always try because there's overlap between the editors of the anthology and then our nano municipal right. uh, liaisons. So it's not just me; it's it's me and two others. Um, and so we always like we always want to have the anthology out and done before nano right. hits because we know we're gonna have no time to do yeah, exactly. anything. It never happens. <laughs> <laughs> so we so we're lucky if we get it published. So usually we, we will have it published the following January. Okay. No one wants to do anything during Christmas yeah. either. You know, yeah. like after nano, you're like, I need a break. <laughs> so, uh, so it takes you know that, that twelve to fourteen months, but there is breaks in between. Right. It. Okay. Um, so if you if you are hundred percent dedicated to it, you definitely could probably turn it around with our process right. in about ten months. Okay, but then you would have your day job your own writing mm. and your anthology work. That's a big workload. Mm, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it is definitely a commitment. Um, and sometimes it will take away from, from other things. Okay. Uh, the, like, I think people always, and not just also from an editor standpoint, yeah. but from, if, even if you're just a contributing author, because you're writing four drafts, but then you also have to critique nine different stories. Yes. Um, maybe more, depending on how many stories we have. We, we we match it up. So for each story you submit, you have to critique three. So if you submit two stories to the anthology, each round you're doing six. Okay. So, I mean, even logistically, that sounds like a nightmare, trying to do that kind of critiquing rotor. Oh, yeah. I had color-coded Excel charts. <laughs> like, I, would, I would like, I would have this thing. I was like, okay, so... These people all submitted stories of similar story length, so let's prioritize it and have them try to read each other's work. Okay. But then it got difficult as you went through each round because, in my mind, you don't want to read the same story twice. Okay. So sometimes, and sometimes you also don't want to read the same author twice because the stylistic similarities. Uh, you're like, oh, I already read something. Let me do something new, um, and having that difference of opinion can be enlightening sometimes so you don't you want to give people different exposure to different writings and and different authors and so by the end of it sometimes i would be like okay i know this story is a poem and you submitted like a longer short story but i'm still going to have you critique it because yeah everything else that i would match you with has already been taken (laughs) (laughs) so it, it gets a little thin by the end but you're also expecting by the third critiques, that these are pretty, pretty solid. Um, and, and you will see that going through. Like there's a lot more developmental shifts that will happen between the first and second draft and maybe the second and the third. Okay. But by the time people are submitting the fourth draft, um, it's pretty good. And we still have copy editors go through and, and do that, of course. Um, also that's on the editors. Uh, but we'll have extra volunteers okay. help us with, some of the copy editing. So how did you, you... Okay, so, you know, you have come from an environment where, you know, you've critiqued at, at, at college, you've critiqued with, mm-hmm. you know, a writing group. I'm assuming a lot of these authors is kind of their first time kind of through the gate. Um, I'm not asking for horror stories, but how do you handle, you know, conflicts? Because, you know, you know writing is a very personal thing. And unless you've had that experience of being critiqued, the first time you get critiqued, it's like the first time you get a terrible yeah. review. How do you kind of manage if that seems to be happening? Hard to do. 
And I say that with full honesty because a lot of times the problem person might be me. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> yeah, I That's tend to be right. Well, and and kind of like what I said before, like to me, critiques are meant to be critical. They are meant to be something to help you go forward. And I expect to be judged very harshly. Um, and so I can be very harsh and frank in my critiques. So a lot of times uh, the the conflicts might be people didn't like my critique. That has happened a few times. Okay. This is because I am, I am too harsh. I'm too frank. I am very objective. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I know for me, like, what ends up helping me is I go and I read like other people's critiques. So I can see how I can, how I can taper thing down. And that tends to be a common issue that we have seen with other people is because it is a mix of authors. Most authors at this point who go through the anthology have had something published, even if it's just through this anthology. Um, Cause like I said, we, the group has put one regularly out one like every year. Um, Usually we have one or two new people. And so what we have started doing is before we assign critiques Mm -hmm. the first time, we have a workshop on how to do critiques. Okay, good. Um, How to to, to sandwich things, uh, how to make sure that people understand that a critique is your opinion and specifically your opinion. Um, and, And part of that also gets into how you should be evaluating critiques if you're the person receiving it. Uh, I feel like that's the flip side of critiquing is you have to teach people how to do it correctly, but then you also have to prime people to know that this is not like a personal attack. This is something that is very specific to the writing. It's kind of a a two-prong education approach. Um, And different people need, need different sides of it, but that's something that we definitely try to do having people do the multiple critiques is something that also helps with that because then you're not completely reliant on a critique that maybe you don't like. You have the ability to look at multiple things. Um, And so I think that also helps prevent conflicts that we've seen. So someone might, two people might have the same opinions, but some person might say it a a lot more harshly than the other. Um, And then sometimes the editor might have to come in and be like, Yes, but let's look aside from tone and try to get into just the meat of it and helping people with that. That's definitely a conflict that we have to mediate. Sometimes, like when we're assigning other critiques, um, to prevent conflicts, like if I know people aren't getting along, I won't let them interact. (laughs) (laughs) So if if I know two authors don't get along, I'll I'll make sure that they're not critiquing each other's stories. Uh, oh, you mean not getting on literally as two human beings? Oh, right. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I need so, to if if you have two, um, it's a, it's a big group. There's a few strong personalities, yeah. so you have to know which ones tend to butt heads and don't give them the opportunity to butt right. heads. Um, that's that's definitely part of of what goes into it. It sounds like trying um, to do like a table plan for a wedding. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, or uh, I spent some time, even though I'm an analyst now, okay. like I spent a few years as a teacher, um, like 
subbing kindergartners, subbing second graders, like that is chaos. And sometimes this feels like the same. <laughs> um, but, and that's pretty much how, how you, how you have to try to prevent conflicts is try to, it, it, and it helps because, because I have been critiquing for so long and the, the editors on this anthology have gone through the process a few times. We can, we kind of see the pitfalls. And so when we kick off each process, we do our best to mitigate and reduce the chance of those conflicts even happening. Those here's how you do a critique workshop and then selectively assigning critiques. Okay. Yeah. And I guess that's something that just comes with experience as you, as you work through the anthologies, you probably, because first time you get through, I mean, you're, you're not going to know who hates who unless one of the other editors tell you. Um, Correct. Um, And it used to be easier to tell when we would meet in person okay, because when the writers group is getting together in our monthly meetings and everyone is, is mingling and you could kind of keep an eye on things. It was much harder this past year because everything was online. Okay. Yeah, and I think if you're in a room with people, you can see their body language, and you can read that, and you can think, okay, well, she de- she definitely doesn't like her, and he doesn't like him, and okay, right. So everyone's got their stories. Um, they've been critiqued. Um, you know, you've got you've got your your theme. You didn't mention about you know writing the copy in terms of like book jacket stuff, thinking about the title. How do you go about? Um, yeah, editors do that. Too. Okay, <laughs> and then how- that happens after all the stories are in, like when we're figuring out the title and the cover. That's, yeah, that's yeah. I mean, like I, I write a little bit of copy like before I kind of start, and then at the end, obviously, as the story changes, I'll, I'll kind of rewrite it for the for the book jacket. What? Um, how do you go around um, doing covers? Uh, so it varies. Um, in the anthology that we released, well, last year's anthology, which ended up being released this, this January, for example, we, one of the contributing authors had a friend who was a graphic designer. Okay. And so we reached out to him yeah. and he said that he could help us. So there was, and then there was kind of like a, a, a group effort. So he would give us a few examples and then we would say, Hey, can, can we try to do this? How can we like, like there was, you know, lots of pots, you know, cooks in the kitchen type of deal. Um, but we ended up working with a designer to help us with this cover, okay. which worked out really well. I yeah. think uh, it, it looks, it looks good. And then he was able to do the front and the back. I know in previous anthologies, it would just be um, maybe something that, one of the authors came up with. I think for one of our anthologies, we had just like pretty out of focus lights, and that was the cover okay. because it was like a like a, a stock image. We could get. <laughs> um, uh, but we have worked the past two. So the the most recent one was um, masks, facades, and reveals. We had the graphic um, designer, and then the one before that, which was called Stranded. Yeah. We actually uh, someone's spouse as a photographer okay. i think that's what it was yeah. who had provided an image yeah i mean personally speaking those are my my two favorite covers of the four anthologies that i've that i've seen because obviously i saw them linked to Thank your you. goodreads account um so uh, uh, yeah not all of those anthologies i think on my goodreads account are from the group yeah. some of them are other ones that i had just yeah yeah, yeah. so and then i mean how oh yeah that was the thing I wanted to talk to you about contracts because mm-hmm. 
I don't think yes. many groups would necessarily think about rights and and contracts. It kind of feels like, oh, you know, we'll put this thing together and we'll send it out, and then you know we'll use the money to buy you know cookies at the next write-in. But it sounds like you guys are doing it. You know, I don't want to say seriously. You're doing it kind of by the book. So what are your kind of rights setups? So we ask for um, world first English anthology rights. Okay. Um, sometimes we might have someone submit a story that's actually a reprint. Uh-huh. In that case, we will actually change the contract for them. But it's that's pretty much what it is. Um, uh, world rights. Okay. So and, and there's like a variety of different rights that that you can ask for. But essentially, what that means is we're asking for the right to be the first to publish the story in the world. Um, I see. Mainly because it's also something that, you know, through Amazon, you can get that global distribution. Yeah. Okay. And then how do you, um, so you have, how many writers did you have in your last anthology? 39. Okay. So how on earth do you? It, it, it might be less. Sorry. Okay. I, I might be getting my numbers mixed up. It might be 39 stories from 24 authors. Okay. So from a royalties perspective, how even split even split okay but somebody somewhere has the money coming to them so i guess they need to be transparent about what royalties have come in and then and then work it all out okay yeah so that's another it's one of my co-mls and fellow anthology editor is technically all of our contracts are we are selling rights to him and then every year he sends up an updated list of like okay here's everything that we've sold here's what that profit split is here's the money you can expect if you if you want it um so it's not uncommon for authors to decide that instead of taking the royalty checks for example they might donate it to the nano region okay and then we use that money when we're not in covid times and all digital we'll use it to reserve rooms for like kickoff parties or an all-day write-in um, when we're meeting in person. Okay. That sounds like you're making some good money then. Uh, we have to hire a not, room. I, mean, I, I don't know what the prices are like where you are, but. The, the rooms are pretty, pretty cheap, oh, okay. I'll right. be honest. Um, because it's it's the government building. Right. So it's not like, so we're, we're, we're renting from like the city hall. So it's it's usually pretty cheap. Um, we clean up after ourselves. Like that's, that's kind of part of the deal. Um, but it's, but it's it, it works out well. So we don't have our expenses aren't super high. So our expenses are probably on for room rentals, anyways. I think they're under a hundred a year. Oh, okay. So like pretty cheap. Right. Yeah. Um and I wouldn't say the royalties that we get are super high because again, it's a it's a even yeah, split. Yeah. So um, if a book is selling for ten dollars, then you have to split that with over twenty authors. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, you're not getting a lot there. But it has been year over year. There has at least been something okay. that we could choose yeah. whether we want to take it or if we want to donate it to the group. And what, what do you think the advantages are to doing an anthology? Um, in the way that we yeah, do it. Yeah. So there's a few. So I think the big advantage is actually the workshop nature of it. So a lot of people 
this is their way of having a story critiqued and improved. And you can see things happen yeah. over the course of yeah. the year. That's part of the fun as an editor is you're like, oh, I remember the first draft. Let's look <laughs> at it now. Uh, so that is a huge draw and a huge benefit, I think, for a lot of the authors. Right. And because I've been involved with it for a few years at this point, I could also see authors improve okay. year over year yeah. with their stories in the anthology. Um, that is the big the big advantage here of course people like to like to be published and we we do try to do it as legitimate as possible like you said we have a contract we're publishing it online uh we have people not just us you know buying it um we we tend to do like we will have the print books and also try to seed our local libraries with it um so the most recent one, like I seeded all my local free little libraries. I'm like, oh, the people took it. That made me so. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, they didn't just sit there. People actually took Great. it. Um, so that 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 would be another advantage is you always get that thrill when you see your name yes. in print. Um, and I'm and, and still kind of sad that my first publication was audio and not print because I don't have that first okay. thing, but I have the audio yes. file. And I'm like, yes. And I still have the contract saved in my computer. I'm like, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it's that's what a lot of people want, yeah. and not everyone has the the where all or even the knowledge of how to get a short story into publication. Okay. Uh, how to research markets is a skill. Yes. Um, markets themselves are also very selective. Um, it's not uncommon, like you'll go on some of the websites that will track market acceptance rates, and they're like. 0.1%. Really? So it's <laughs> it's really hard sometimes. And so this is a way to help people improve and also give them that sense of self-worth that, yes, look, I have been published. I have an author and people actually buy it and enjoy it. So do you... That's really all I'm wrong. Yeah. So something that's just popped into my mind, okay? So if I tell somebody I, I'm a writer, uh, first question is, what what do you write? And then the second question is, yeah, but are you traditionally published or are you self-published? Because I think there's that that thing about um, sort of cred- credibility. So the writers that are take part in your anthology, do they consider themselves self-published or traditionally published? They consider themselves self-published, okay. but they would still, um, they would still call themselves published authors. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then as a short story writer, do you think you have, do do you think the odds are better at being traditionally published than they are if you're writing long fiction? That's a really good question. And the analyst brain in my head wants to like actually go Google numbers right now. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say this, in the few long things that I have written and I have tried to submit, I tend to have better success at generating interest for that than I have with short stories. So it is not uncommon for me to send out a short story to a variety of publications over two years and then not get a single acceptance for it. Whereas I had a novel um, that I shopped around last year and I actually ended up getting six manuscript full, you know, like full requests. Okay. Um, No one, no one decided to actually represent me, which is fine. Like, sure. You know, uh, but having six agents tell me 
on the same story, um, hey, like there is merit in this. Let me read it. Let me push it to the next level. That happened way more likely with one story than I would with my short story. Okay. Um, I have one that, that's circulating right now. Like I said, it's probably pushing a year and a half because it just takes so long mm-hmm. sometimes for markets to get back to you. Yeah. I've had two positive receptions to it. Um, is in notifications that it made it to the final round of consideration. Um, (laughs) So it's probably easier. I think it's also because there's more, there's more money and it's a bigger market for, for, for the longer novel works and short stories. Um, A lot of short story publications don't have huge readership. Oh, okay. I always think of short stories. I mean, there there are some some big ones, but a lot of times, like, well, think, think about your own reading habits. If you're picking up something to read, what are you going for? A novel or an anthology or a single short story on a website, maybe? Uh, I always think of short stories as being in a, in a magazine. Um, so, yeah, I hadn't really thought about a short story in an anthology. Um, I did have a question about submitting short stories, um, I, I've, only because I've never done it. But um, certainly I see in competitions – uh, people are charged often for entering something into a competition. Is that is that the same for you, or are you, if you are submitting to the places that you are submitting, it's free to you? Um, it's free, okay. and if it's not, I don't submit. Right. Okay. So there's there's that age old adage, I suppose, that money should flow to the author. Yes. So as soon as I'm being asked to pay to like enter a contest, perhaps, or to submit. Yeah. Um, then I just don't yeah, do it, yeah. honestly. Um, a lot of the, I think all of the prorated markets, so that's places that would, um, see again, there's just like not a lot of money in short stories. A pro rate is 10 cents a word. Okay. Um, so, wow. And if okay. your story is a thousand, a thousand words, like, eh. <laughs> um, but they don't charge for you to submit your story okay. because all of all of the money should be going to yeah, the author. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, and that is another danger in a lot of short story markets is not all of them because they don't have the reader base and they don't charge perhaps for the material will actually pay authors. So I know uh, some of the other authors that have been in you know the, the group's anthologies with me have gotten pieces published elsewhere okay. as well. But... They have been in non-paying markets. And so people, especially new authors, I feel like anytime you see, you see your name, like you're so excited about yes. it. And sometimes people will, will do that trade-off of um, having that publication credit versus actually getting paid for it. And that's something that me, like from a business standpoint, like if I'm not going to get above a certain uh payment per yeah. word i'm just not going to pay yeah. for it or i'm not going to submit yeah. and i'm not going to pay to have my story submitted someplace yeah that's a choice yeah it's always been something i've i've always wondered about like are these people trying to make money <clears throat> or are they just trying to cover their costs it's if they are for contests it's probably a little bit of okay. both because especially if it's a cash cash yes. prize um, then you have to you have to have that money for the cash price come somewhere. There are contests, however, where you don't have to pay okay. for that that entry fee. Um, and I'm sure there might be some type of uh, 
thank you, V, for, for judges too, perhaps. Sometimes you will see markets say that, hey, we ask for like maybe a dollar submission fee to help cover the cost of the software okay. that they use in order for you to submit something through. But anytime there is that situation where they're asking the author to pay to submit, mm. the place you're submitting to probably isn't self-sufficient. Okay. So there's no guarantee that they're going to be around for very long. There's no guarantee that they're they're going to have money to give you. Um, there's no guarantee either how much your story might have in terms of exposure. So if some place is asking you to pay a dollar to submit and then they're not actually like giving you any payment afterwards or very small payment, um, sometimes you'll see like, okay, we'll pay a flat fee of of $5. But if your story by the word could have gotten you more someplace else, then again, that's another trade-off you have to consider. So it can be... It's definitely a world you have to navigate yes. and you you have to learn. And when you first start diving in there, it can be definitely very, very scary and overwhelming. <laughs> and you're just like, what is going on? <laughs> um, there's some good resources out there to help people. Yeah, it just, it just seems like a, a completely different world. I, I did want to come back to something you said about <clears throat> libraries. Because I've noticed that the format, excuse me, the format that I um, published in, the book size, there was a warning that came up and I just kind of ignored it, that it wasn't a book size that Amazon would supply to a library. And it was very odd. It was like quarter of an inch. If I'd changed the format of the book by a quarter of an inch, they would have supplied it to libraries. How do you... Is that a conscious decision that you made or are you literally printing copies and taking it into a library? The latter. All right. Okay. So what ends up happening is we get, we will buy discounted author yes. copies. So, you know, you know, less than market price for, for us. And we make sure it tends to be very individual. So as a group, we have connections with two libraries because when we're meeting in person, that's where we tend to have our meetings and, and we have good relationships with them. So um, we give them, you know, here, thank you for supporting us. Here's the result of your support type of copies. And then here locally, um, I have connections with two of my local okay. libraries. So one of them this past nano actually hosted some of our virtual write-ins. So through the library, they would, they would advertise the write-in and then I would host it on zoom and, and such. And then there's another uh, local library who has an online critique group that I will pop in occasionally. And, and so I was able to approach both of my contacts at the library and say, do you have a collection for local authors? Okay. They both said, yes. So then I was able to give them copies of the anthology uh, and it is specifically in sections of the library. That's like, Hey, here, look at this, but it is me paying for a copy of the book and then donating okay. it. Okay. And then I did the same thing for the free little libraries. So that is me paying for extra copies of the anthology and then seeding it throughout the neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, that still raises, raises the, uh, the profile of it as well. And I guess yes. if you've got, I don't know, 24 writers, you've got 24 people doing some marketing as well. To some extent. So we've had, um, it was actually kind of like a hiccup we had with our past anthology. Okay. I wanted to do a marketing okay. campaign. And then we had difficulties with, we put it on Amazon 
And then Amazon didn't have like a delay or a wait period. So as soon as we uploaded it, there was the buy. Okay. We couldn't have a pre-order link. And that meant if we had sent people to the Amazon site to pre-order, they would have been getting a proof copy uh, and not one that we were officially ready okay. for. So we found that we couldn't like truly do a marketing campaign until we were sure that when we directed people to the site to buy, that they would be getting the right version. So it was kind of haphazard. <laughs> <laughs> um, but once everything was good, everyone, and, and not everyone in the anthology has, for example, social media right, profile, right. but those who did were pretty good about like, look, hey, here's this. And then we would reblog and, and respond to people's works. I know a lot of people in the anthology will also like email blast their family and friends. So. Yeah. Cause I guess you've got that. <clears throat> you do have that kind of built in family friends audience as well. How. Yes. How then if somebody's thinking of putting an anthology together, what, what advice would you give them? Be very clear up front as to what you want the anthology okay. to be. So you don't, it will prevent a lot of issues later on. So have clear cut understandings of like what you want the word count to be, what you want the rating of stories to be, what type of stories that you're looking for. So if you are expecting, for example, to edit an anthology that's all horror stories, make sure people know that. <laughs> so you're not going to get submissions of romances. It just it will save you a little bit of a headache. Okay. So be very clear in your communication with your authors straight from the beginning and then all the way through, even then when you're communicating deadlines and contracts and any updates to the project, make sure that you're also keeping the authors updated because they will ask. Yes. <laughs> They're like, how is it going? How's it, how's it coming along? <laughs> yeah. So um, good communication is definitely the number one piece of advice I have. Okay. Fantastic. That That's all great stuff. And I'm definitely going to, going to take on all of that when I, yeah, kick off this anthology with with my group, which... Let me know if you have any questions about okay. it. I can help you, Steve. All right, fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Gwen. I guess the, the final question is, where can people find you and your work online? Oh, yeah. So uh, Twitter and Instagram are probably the best bets. So for both of them, my username is Gwen Tolios, no space. So that is G-W-E-N-T-O-L-I-O-S. Okay, Fantastic. Great. Well, thank you again. It's been an absolute delight talking to you today. And uh, yeah. Same. Great. Thank you for joining. Take care. You too.